You're listening to 100 p.m. in New York City, episode 55. One hundred PM is the show where we're interviewing one hundred expert product managers across five great cities to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product. Today's guest is Jai Yi Ying, international product manager at Scholastic. If you'd like to learn more after the show, be sure to visit our website at one hundred productmanagers.com. The web's fastest growing resource for hot topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm your host, Suzanne Abate, product coach and founder of The Development Factory. Let's dive right in and say hello to Jai Yi. Hi, I'm Jai Ying, and I'm the international product manager at Scholastic. Scholastic is a warm and fuzzy kind of feeling, and Clifford is in the lobby. It's exactly what you think it will be when you come to this building. There are many Cliffords around in this building, and he's big and just lying around everywhere. How old is Clifford? Um, I don't actually know how old Clifford is. The company itself is turning 100 in two years, so that's a big... That's the next big milestone, if you will, that we're trying to hit. That's so exciting. We'll come back to Scholastic in a moment. I want to kick us off by talking about beginnings. You began your career at a place called Undercurrent. And some of our listeners will know Undercurrent and, and some won't, but it was kind of a big deal here in New York for a while. Can you tell us what you were doing at Undercurrent and why was Undercurrent a big deal? Yeah, so I was um, I was a strategist at Undercurrent, and I didn't really know going in that Undercurrent was a big deal. I knew that it was doing great work with great clients, but I wasn't really I hadn't been exposed to the agency world before that. And I remember when I went in for my interview, leaving, and I was like, people work in spaces like this, and people do work like this. So it was very much like my world was shifted in some way after that interview. Was it because the environment itself looked different than what you imagined a workplace would be, or what was that impression? It was the environment, very much so. So before Undercurrent, a couple of jobs before, I worked at General Assembly in London. I was studying abroad and wanted an internship and cold emailed the campus. And they're like, okay, yeah, sure, we need someone to help. So I showed up on the first day and it was just empty floor, one table in the corner, two guys sitting there and like, oh, hi, yeah, you could just put your computer somewhere here, pull a chair, and that's it. But then after General Assembly, after I came back to New York, I wanted a sense of, I was like, how do people work in traditional offices? What does that even mean? And I went complete 180 and worked at McKinsey for a little bit. And that was very much like big corporate office. I bought a blazer for my interview, <laughs> which I returned after the interview. And... So they were very opposite ends of a working experience. And then when I walked into Undercurrent, it felt very much like it was an office, but people were very themselves in a lot of ways. Was there a ping pong table? Some of the, the, you there know, was the, no, the signs of a modern environment? There was no ping pong table, but there, there was neon light. Cool. And so you were a strategist there? Yes. What does that even mean to be a strategist, by the way? I don't really know. <laughs> Still um, to this day after to doing this that day, role. I think I've always struggled with what titles even mean. Um, even before Undercurrent at McKinsey and at different jobs, it was just, I'm doing everything that comes to me that doesn't necessarily fit into this job title or what I would read about to be this job title. When I was at Undercurrent, we just, I worked on, we were 
on different client projects. And every client is different. Every project is different. The time I worked there, we were also just completely changing, pivoting the company's offering from digital marketing to this future of work, new way of working thing. No one really knew what it was about, but we had this hunch of like, things are fundamentally changing. The work that we, you know, the digital marketing strategies and the decks that a lot of great strategists before me created, they weren't really being implemented. And what's the reason for that? And then going really to the root source for, well, maybe people are working in not the right ways to be able to take on this work. So I think the time I joined, I wasn't exposed that much to the digital marketing era of the company. We were thinking very much about new ways of working and coaching and team facilitation and just figuring it out as we were going. Part of the mantra, if you will, at the time was build the plane in midair. Okay. And we talked a little bit, you were saying that like, oh, it sounds like part of kind of the way you figured out your job and your careers have been through just learning by doing. And that was also very much an ethos there. Right. Build the plane in midair. Yeah. The story of undercurrent is kind of like the sad cautionary tale. If, if you, if for our listeners, if you Google undercurrent NYC, I think the, the last remaining article online talks about how it was kind of once New York's darling and then just sort of went away almost overnight. Did it go away overnight for you? Were you there when the company just ceased to be? Did you get an email and it was like, by the way, we're done? Yes, I don't think it was that explicitly said. I So I was also very much out of it. Like I wasn't, I was not very aware of, again, the reputation of the company and also the reputation of the company that we joined Quirky. I know that when the merger was announced, I was a little surprised. A couple people were kind of like, why are we doing this? And I didn't necessarily understand. I was like, okay, yeah, well, I've heard of Quirky and they're like a successful startup, like I've, you know, all the money they've raised. But there are a lot of people concerned, and I didn't truly understand why, and I was just going along with it. And there was a little bit of like, so what are we doing here? And like, our work isn't really changing, but we're just put into a different environment. And I think everybody saw saw it coming, but there was no, no one could give you a definitive answer, because no one even, there was no definitive answer. The day that everything went down, we just, we received an email we're like, oh, come up, you know, two o'clock, all hands meeting. And I was like, okay, well, I know what this is going to be about. It wasn't the most celebratory of all of the historic all hands meetings, I guess. No, it was not. I think there was a bit of a somber mood and there was something beautiful about it too. I think the, the team, we weren't integrated as much with their team, but their team was very much a family. And then like when they were, they were passing around flowers and people were wearing like yellow flowers in their hair that some one of the team members I brought and was giving to people. And it was like watching that also, was just, this is something special for another group of people and they're losing that. For me, it was, it was like a weird situation to be in, to be like, I, don't, I can't quite explain it. It was well, just, just watching like, people have this kind of deep attachment to an experience that, like you said before, you were sort of a little bit outside of it. It's like you were doing this job first kind of, you know, significant job out of school, post some, you know, internships and small things, but you didn't have that same deep emotional connection to it, sounds like. Yes, I think we also didn't have a deep emotional connection to Quirky as a parent company. And that was also, I think there was a bit of like, I don't know if it's that strong as resentment, but it's just kind of like, why? So we were successful and even 
when it went down, we had, I think, our best month ever. So it was a confusing situation to be in, to be like, okay, well, we're doing well, but our fate is tied to this other company that we haven't really worked with and that we don't really know about. So that was kind of a confusing moment to be in. But I would say, looking back now, like, you know, as tough as a time that was for many people, I think it was, I'm also grateful for that time and for the things that I've learned from it and that that experience has, it made me discover new things and kind of really take a moment to think about what it is that I really wanted to do. Well, I think why it's relevant is that that experience applies to certainly a lot of people listening to our show, right? In this kind of startup era, startup landscape, a lot of people go and take a chance on a new company. And, you know, you ride the waves when the company is is doing well and, and those companies can kind of come crashing down. And, and then that can be jarring when you're just sort of setting out in your career as you were just sort of setting out. It's like one minute I'm part of this really exciting kind of new thing and then the next minute it kind of hits a wall. What did you do after that? I, I, I talk about this train trip I went on after and friends that I talked to are like, oh yeah, your eat, pray, love period. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, sure. Um, it wasn't that planned. It was actually kind of awkward. A couple of team members and I had applied to go to XOXO that year in Portland. And I think around the time the company went down, I found out I got in. And I was like, okay, well, should I get the money back or should I just go? I've always wanted to go to Portland. I had this kind of sense of like, okay, well, maybe there's something out there in the West Coast I've never been and like I hear great things about Portland. So I was like, I'll go. And it felt silly to buy a plane ticket because I had all this time. And I'd always wanted to take a train trip across the country. I talked to friends about it, but it was always kind of like, oh yeah, well, if we could do those things, that would be amazing. And suddenly I found myself with this time and this destination, if you will, to the West. And I'm like, okay, I'll just book a train ticket. And going in, I didn't have any idea of like what it is I wanted to do on the train or what I wanted to get out of it. It was kind of like, I wanted to do this. And then I brought a couple of books that I didn't read. There's <laughs> too much outside the window that I was just like staring at. And I didn't realize it then, but I think in that time, it was just kind of all the things that I always wanted to do in some way but didn't feel like I could or didn't make the time to do. Like and, what? Like writing and just like scribbles even. Um, sitting there and being and having, kind of just seeing what comes to me rather than being like, okay, I need to I need to do this in order to buff up my resume or I need to do this in order to do, you know, to do this thing that leads to the next thing. Just being in the moment, if you will, as cheesy as that sounds. And... I think every job that I took before, every internship I took before, there was always some sense of curiosity, but it was never really, this is specific, really what I wanted to do. I think when I was in college, I was like, I want to work in magazines and I want to work in fashion. And then I went to a couple interviews at magazine. I was like, I don't know, this is kind of, it's just, it's still also an office and you're kind of, you're also just sending emails every day. And it's, you know, it's different world, but also different, it's the same work. I'm rambling a little bit. I, it's a nice ramble. I mean, I, I think you're you're talking about the experiences that we're faced with. I mean, a question that's coming up in my mind, and maybe I'll ask it, is have you always been in New York? I moved to New York for college. Okay. So it's been almost eight years now. The experience that you're describing a little bit about giving yourself 
like space to breathe, space to think, permission to do things like writing that aren't necessarily linked to what's next in the career. I mean, I grew up on the East Coast and there is very much an energy, certainly in New York, of hustle like hustle, hustle, hustle. So it sounds like part of this journey was about detaching lovingly from the the need to hustle. What opened up for you? I mean, where did you go after your eat, pray, love period? I still find it weird to call it my eat, pray, love period. <laughs> it wasn't really an eat, pray, love period. Um, I think to your point, I was very much caught in the hustle in some way. My first internship in college, my freshman year, I worked at a startup of a kind they had just started. They taught me everything I know, basically. And like the two founders are a big influence in how I develop my sense of being in a workspace or just even out in the world in general. And when Undercurrent went down, it was a slowing down in a lot of ways. I did I wasn't really excited about any any job. And I was like, I don't know if I enjoy working in the corporate environment. And at that time I'd worked in so many offices already that I was kind of jaded by it all in some way. But I also saw it as like, I need to do this in order to be able to support myself and to live in our society today. Thinking about what I enjoyed at Undercurrent and in my jobs, it was always like working with different people. And I had worked jobs before where it was very specific functions. I was like creating emails. I worked at NYU Press and it was an email mar- or digital marketing role, and it was a lot of kind of emailing authors and asking them to write blog posts and then creating email blasts. And like it was a very specific role, and I enjoyed that, but I also couldn't see myself doing that constantly. I wanted more variety from a job, and I think what I enjoyed at Undercurrent was the sense of variety in terms of working with the different clients or working on something that would feed into our new offering, different tools, different processes. Out of the jobs that I've been exposed to and was aware of, product management seemed to be that, and it seemed to be a good blending of my experiences to date at that point. So I had been around the development world in some way. I I understood the the parts that fed into it, but I had never really fully been in the product world. That's kind of what I gravitated towards. I got really lucky because I have a friend who I worked with many years ago. We were waiting for an event for the elevator at General Assembly in New York, actually. And she turned around and she's like, Jai? I was like, yeah, hi, like, you remember me. She was working in product management at Ann Taylor. And I just kind of was like, after I got back from New York, I was like, I, I think product management is something I want to pursue. And, you know, kind of we just have dinner and I'd love to hear kind of what your job is about. She had just gone to the children's place, got this opportunity to lead digital transformation there. And that's how I kind of ended up at the children's place, which was my first product management job. So she was like, oh, it's so great that you're inquiring about product management because I actually need to hire someone. So come and be that product manager with me. Yeah. She was going, well, at the, at the end of our conversation, she's like, well, you know, I'm actually hiring, trying to build up a team. Are you interested? And she she didn't really know about Undercurrent, but there's something about Undercurrent where, like, if you tell people about the work you're doing, they're like, they don't quite understand it, but they're intrigued by it. I think that was the whole offering. It's like, <laughs> if we just make it sound really cool but also inaccessible, people will pay a lot of money for it because they're like, I've got to have that. There you go. (laughs) If you're listening in, that's a good strategy as any for building a compelling services business. All the budding management consultancies out there, (laughs) listen. 
So the Children's Place is a children's clothing store. You were brought on board to help manage digital transformation. What did that like practically entail in terms of what you were working on during that time? A lot of chaos. Honestly, I would not. I was there for a year, and I wrote a lot of user stories in Jira, but also didn't really. It was just kind of throwing things at the wall in a lot of ways, and that was kind of what everyone was doing in some way. My boss was very much thinking about process, and like no one had even been exposed to Jira before, so it was kind of working, defining the workflow, and this is what the backend developer should be doing. This is what UI should be doing, and. That was a big part of the focus, and it was a lot. When I joined, even I don't, I don't think the work was fully ready yet to hit the ground. It was still very much with kind of there was a consultancy that we were a big consultancy that was managing it also. So there was a lot of discussions with the CEO and discussions with upper leadership, and things were spinning in that phase still. Yeah, it was a lot of chaos. It was it was kind of. Again, just standing there and watching people in a lot of ways, and being like, "Okay, so this is what what's going on, and this is how this would implicate this team, and this is what I would be responsible for." Many of the things that have made my current job, in some way, successful feels too strong a word, but that have been helpful, if you will, in my current job have been from just kind of that observation period while at the children's place. Tactically, like doing in terms of. The work I did exposure to Jira was that was my first exposure. I'd been working with Trello before, and which is not quite the same thing. There is a use for Trello, I think, but there is also like I think some people try to use Trello as Jira, and it's like that doesn't really work. And I was I was one of those people who was like, do we really need Jira? Like we can just get on Trello. It's it's easy, and everybody gets access to it. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> so that was like good exposure to to it also. But I also felt very much at certain times like a bottleneck in the team because I was the only product manager on the ground, and any story that needed to be created, I'd be like, "Oh well, it needs to go through you." And I'm like, "Well, that doesn't make sense. Like, if it's a developer story, I can't be creating that. Like, that's a waste of my time and waste of developers' time to for me to sit down and try to understand what they're working on when they could just be creating it." So that sort of exposure, those are kind of things that I, I think you can't really read about. Or find in any sort of book or any sort of reading, those have been helpful to me for me, in terms of learning how to engage with different people and try to keep teams on track. Yeah, I mean, there's so much inside of that. The reflection about kind of observing and questioning, kind of what am I supposed to be doing? What's my contribution within this chaos? Is really, in in so many ways, probably the best product management education you could have asked for. You know, I teach product management to individuals and to teams, and one of the things that that I like to say is. A lot of the times, being a product manager is equivalent to kind of stepping out onto an empty field and then being responsible for putting together the scaffolding that's going to turn it into an event that everyone is going to come and participate in. And that's hard because really, what that means is nobody is there to tell you what systems do we need, where do we need to be investing our time, what is the right thing to focus on. You have to decide that, and the having to decide that, especially if you haven't been exposed to it, if it's if it's your first time in the role, 
that's the part that's foreign. That's the part that's challenging because you're perhaps used to coming from environments where someone has already kind of marked out what the job is, like that email marketing you know, role that you spoke about earlier. So stepping into product management is also stepping into some personal power. You know, people talk about or debate really how much power we actually have as product managers, but I think there's a personal power and a personal sense of organization that you have to connect with in any role. And then once you go to a different environment, all of the rules change again, all of the processes that worked at the last place don't work for an entirely different set of reasons. So thanks to the children's place for putting you where you are in, in so many ways, I suppose. Yeah, I think part of power is also knowing when to give away power. A couple of days ago, I was working with one of our developers and he he got, he lost, he's a lead developer, so he needs to know like exactly what's going on in the project and where the project is, but we don't really have, that's where the Jira, Trello differences are. Like I created a bunch of stories in Jira and I was like, okay, so this is what's coming up and we can groom this and then we can put it in planning in a couple of weeks. And he was like, wait, hang on, but like what, can we just put this all in the Trello and try to figure it out? And it felt a little bit like, okay, well, if you were here, you know, we would all be on the same page. It wasn't kind of blaming him, but it was just, okay, there's something missing where we need to document something. And as we were going through, he, I think we had differences in how to label something or how to categorize something. I wanted things to be much more specific. And he was like lumping three things together. And he was like, well, you know, something I learned from my wife is that, you know, you're always right. I'll go with what you say. And I was like, well, no, 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 that's not true. That's, yeah, yes, that's, that's what you should be doing with your wife. But like in this situation, that's not true because I think we also need to meet up, both of us. It can't just be what works for me or what makes sense for me because ultimately that won't make sense for you. And kind of finding that middle ground in some way with the person, or even not even middle ground, maybe 75% his way, that's something that is also part of power, but it's giving away power. It's realizing that you have to, it's a give and take that makes any sort of relationship that you have with a person, working relationship, any relationship really, it makes it more flexible and dynamic and you know, less rigid and less kind of just that one strict lane that you're walking on. It's kind of, well, maybe the path goes this way and like we can figure it out together. Yeah, I mean, that's it's very telling about how you lead as a product manager and really perfect articulation, in my opinion, of when we talk, as we often do on this show, about aligning stakeholders, when we talk about good stakeholder relations or persuasion, we don't always crack into it with such specificity. And that example that you give is a great one where it's it's not about my way. It's actually about sh- getting to shared understanding. And, and sometimes you got to kind of grind your way through that, but, but the results on the other side are better. So you're here at Scholastic. I talked about Clifford and I realized there may be some people listening who don't know about Scholastic, even though it's coming up on its 100th birthday. So why don't you tell us who is Scholastic? What do you all do here? A lot of people actually don't know about Scholastic because I work in the international department. I was in Mexico. We, so we, Scholastic as a whole has different business divisions and the biggest part is the U.S. book clubs and book fairs, which if you grew up in the U.S., went to school in the U.S., elementary, middle school probably, you're familiar with it. It's like and in Canada. And actually. in Canada. I think now even in like, France and other countries, India, I think, is starting up the book fairs and book clubs, publishing books, um, getting books out to schools, distributing them through that. That's the main business. But then there's also the crux of the team is focused on selling books in international, non-U.S. markets, anywhere in the world but the U.S. Our team manages that. 
But then we also have a couple of assessment products, literacy products, software that is also sold alongside that. And I manage that with my boss. A lot of people don't know about Scholastic. One thing that I realized was that I was on a school, we do school visits. And last May, I was in Mexico City going with our sales rep visiting schools. And we were going, driving up to this private school in Mexico City and they were like school buses parked outside and the buses say Scholastica on them. And I was like, oh, like, that's like very similar to Scholastic. Do you get a lot of confusion around this? And she's and our sales rep, Viviana, was like, yeah, 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 all the time. So kind of where I go in, I'm like, hi, I'm from Scholastic. They're like, oh, the bus company? <laughs> like, no, no, books. Right. What is the landscape like for books in this day and age? I mean, you talk about the book club and it's, for me, it brings up so many memories, right? Scholastic was a really big identity in my childhood. Clifford was a really big character of that day and age. And so being here in present day in 2018, it's a little bit hard for me to imagine that that's still alive and well. How has digital transformation become a part of this company kind of staying relevant? I don't know if there's a digital transformation project ongoing. There might be. We have a big development team on the U.S. side. But I think what keeps kids excited these days are Harry Potter and Captain Underpants. Geronimo Stilton is very big in India. But we also have software products to supplement that reading. And also, a lot of schools don't have, for international, a lot of schools don't have access to these books. So we have an ebook library that easily provides that access. When I was at the Children's Place, digital transformation was very much kind of the core of going through the core of the company in some way. And that's where a lot of the chaos came in because it, the business was fundamentally brick and mortar. And then e-commerce was always kind of like a second thought. It, the website was built by different vendors. So bringing that expertise in was very confusing for a lot of people. When we were thinking about technology, even people were like, oh, the scanners in the store. It's like, no, that's a whole different world. But everything fell under IT, so it's kind of still like technology is different from IT, and we don't really have a clear understanding of that. And I think that's, I don't know fully, but my sense of it is that that's also the case here, where technology is a very small part. The big focus is still on printed books and publishing, and the apps that we have, it's still kind of, we're, I describe kind of international as the underdog of the company in some way, but then software even is an underdog within that, <laughs> uh, which is fun sometimes to be, it, it has its drawbacks, but it also has its really fun places where you're just kind of like, okay, well, there's a lot of freedom, if you will, a lot of room to experiment and to not feel like there's a lot of oversight, if that makes sense. And it gives a lot of, I was talking to someone actually the other day, they were asking me, what's your favorite part, uh, candidate, like, what's your favorite part of working here? And I was like, well, it gives you a personal, that space to just do anything, experiment, it gives you a personal sense of autonomy and a personal sense of responsibility because the buck stops here, if you will. Anything that goes around the program, I am responsible for. And so I want it to be whatever we create to be as best as we can. And I've worked in places before where that just wasn't possible, where, you know, copy had to go up to the CEO for approval and like an Oxford comma could not be used because the CEO didn't like it, that sort of thing. <laughs> right. So that's, a you know, it's good to have that sort of breathing room, if you will. 
you talk about, you know, being the under underdog. What's the structure of your team? Do you have other product managers that, that you're working alongside? Is it just you in the, the bigger vortex of Scholastic? It's just me on my team with my boss, but like on the ground level, it's really, it's me. There are different aspects of building the program. So that's kind of where we're, the line is drawn in terms of content. We're trying to hire someone to take that piece on. We had a team member who left, so someone else is, I'm like, I don't know anything about content and uploading eBooks is, you're, I will not be able to do a good job at this. So I do most of the product management for all the programs that we have. The digital programs. The digital programs. Yeah, so I work with our developers. Most of the team is spread out in different parts of the world. Our publishers in Singapore, our editorial teams are in Australia, editorial teams in Philippines also, and our development teams in India. But then for another project that we're working on with the U.S., I work with the U.S. development team. So it's different people. Like, I'm juggling lots of different balls at different projects and people all the time. So with so many, with so much team switching, so you're the constant and then there's a team for this and a team for that. So you have to kind of go between different teams. Is everybody operating from the same processes or do you have to bring, you know, that negotiation that you were speaking about a little bit earlier, do you have to kind of find that different negotiation every time you plug into a different developer team for a specific project? I have to find it every time. I think when I first started, um, because the team has so much history already, they, the team in India, they've built all of our programs, which started four years ago from scratch. And so they know everything that's going on there. And for me to come in and be like, no, we're going to change this up, like that felt, I didn't really understand what they were doing. It's kind of like a doctor being like, oh, you're coughing. Okay, great. Go take some, you know, go buy some halls and you're fine. I think that's, but maybe that's not, what's actually the root problem, the root cause. So it took me about eight or nine months maybe to really figure out kind of what, how to kind of best communicate with that team, how, because we're also completely different time zones and we interact mainly through JIRA tickets. And then lately it's also been more Skype, so like more, commu- more verbal communication, which is great. I've in- like slowly introduced different things. And I'm like, when I talked about, is this working? You know, what do you like about it? Is this good or is this not? And it's been successful in terms of just making the Jira stories much more granular and being much more specific and having the stories be UX driven. So there's something to see and be like, okay, so this is what I'm building versus for backend developers, I think it's really hard because they don't really, if you don't have the UI there, they're like, what am I building? And how does this tie into, it's invisible work, you know? And it's like providing that clarity, I take that as my responsibility for them. Um, but for the U.S. team I'm working on or working with, that's also a different thing where it's just like they work in completely different ways and they have their rhythm also. And me coming in, I don't think they fully understood my role even because they don't have a concept of product managers there. So for a while, they're like, OK, well, you you're kind of the business owner for this because this is your platform that we're, so we're integrating a platform with them. And so I was in meetings with them, but I didn't really feel like I was contributing. And I was like, what's. I'm looking at all these stories. I'm like, okay, I can help you understand what the, how this works on the platform and what this needs to be. But I didn't feel like I was leading in any single way. I was kind of supporting, which was fine. But I also felt like they were, weren't fully understanding what needed to be done. So after a couple of those meetings where I was kind of like, what's, what's actually really going on? Like, I didn't really feel like I was, I had a grip on the project. 
I'm like, okay, well, actually, let me let me create these stories. I can go and take screenshots, provide it for you, mark it up, blah blah blah. And slowly, they're like, okay, getting into a process that I think is working for them. A topic that has come up a couple times on this show is this notion of disrupting yourself, and it's often in the context of getting too comfortable as a product manager. And this is, you know, so for me, I work consultatively and the inherent benefit of that is I get to to touch a lot of different types of businesses and solve a lot of different types of problems. And I work on those to varying degrees of depth for a period of time. And then I move on to other things. And one of the challenges when you're working in-house of, of any organization is you're just kind of doing it one way in one path. And it sounds like this context switching that we're describing of, you know, working with one team and then working with a different one and sort of constantly having to reset around process and expectations is actually a benefit for keeping you sharp and and keeping you sharp and malleable to the extent that we can be sharp and malleable, but malleable to different ways of doing. Because even when you, you spoke before about Trello versus Jira, this this is... There isn't one right way to do this, right? That's another core theme of the show. There's not one right way to do this. Nobody knows it exactly. It's all about finding your way. It's all about negotiation. Yeah, there isn't a right way to. I think one of the biggest things I learned is that there's no right way to do anything. And I, we were talking a little earlier about the head versus heart thing that I've been thinking about. And I think you get very caught up in your head if you're thinking the right way to do it is this way because then you don't allow room for, well, maybe there is something better or maybe there's something that I that I don't know yet because thinking that something is right is like, I know this and there's nothing more to learn. And I actually hit this kind of moment a couple of weeks ago. I was just like, what am I? It feels like it's I'm kind of stagnating and it came very abruptly. I felt like I was learning and I was doing things that I enjoyed. And then suddenly I was just kind of like, okay, but it's kind of all the same now. Like we're, I'm working on different products, but still just creating the stories and I'm working with the same team and it's just kind of the same cycle over and over again. What has helped actually is working in a different office twice a week also, like the context switching in terms of work, the actual work being done, but then also in terms of the environment and different energies and different people and kind of seeing how different people think. And that's been really rewarding also, or just like, I, my, so much of my work is so far away with our de- development team in India, with our publishers everywhere around the world. Everything is through email and you kind of, you lose that sense of a person's personality and the person, like what makes a person a person. I've been to India and worked closely with our dev team there. And that's a whole different working experience than just being on a phone with them every time, you know, every day. and emailing them every day. It's like you, there's a warmth and there's, there's so much that you lose out on by not being in the same room with someone. And so going to the, our, we have a che- office in Chelsea um, where the U.S. developers sit, spending two days with them, it's like that's a different way of working for me where I'm more like in the trenches with them and I'm kind of shooting the shit with them, which is more fun than just kind of like, okay, being very formal, like, hi, you know, can you please do this? Thanks, cheers, Jai, that sort of thing. So that context switching is also really important. And I think that's also important for just the, the product management profession in general, if you will, because you'll have to work with different people all the time and being able to disrupt yourself, to, be, to break out of any sort of 
notion that you have about how to work with someone or how to work with a team or any notion that you've become comfortable with, that's what keeps you sharp. And that's what's that's really important also in order to feel like you can do work that you feel like I, I'm responsible for this and I want this to be the best thing there is. It might not be the best thing in the world, but it's like the best thing that I can deliver with the people I that are around me. And there are also surprises. Like there are things like I drew up a wireframe the other day for like we're changing the filters in some way. And I'm like this is just a suggestion. But also when we when we do this, can we have like a little bit of an animated drop, that sort of thing? And I didn't really know if when I was explaining to the UI developer if he really got it. But then the next day, one of his team members was like, oh hey, can I show you what I built? I'm like, this is this is better than I thought possible. And that sort of surprise is also like I was ex- as silly as it sounds. I was like excited for about it. The next day, even I was showing my boss, and I was like, even on the demo, I was telling her, I was like, I was very excited about this, and this is better than anything I could have, than what I imagined, and anything that I could have built. And that sort of proximity, that sort of communication, and I'm willingness to be like, here, this is what I thought, but you do your thing. That's also part of the fun of the job. Yeah, it really is the co-creation. Yeah. We do a segment on this show called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. And given the experience that, that you shared about your kind of journey, I'm curious if you could offer to someone listening advice if it all comes crashing down, right? You, you take an awesome job, you're at a startup, it ends, you want to continue in your career. What would you say to that person? What would you say to, to Jai all those years ago? if you could kind of go back and, and offer some advice? Sometimes I think back to previous versions of me, I'm like, wow, like I'm in awe of a previous version of me, which sounds self-conceited, but I was like, there are things that I did at 22 that I was like, I, would, I don't know if I would have the guts to do this now. In some way, I think I built an identity in school in New York through working. I learned about a lot of things. I met a lot of people in that way. And every job I was at was very much in that time period, kind of like, like when I was in London, General Assemblies, that was kind of my life. That's, that was the reason I was there for, I stayed the summer after I stayed, studied abroad and worked there full time. So that was like eight o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock at night, like all the classes needed to run, I was there. And so I got into the, you know, whenever I get on a call with someone, I was like, hi, this is Jay from General Assembly. Or even at previous jobs, like, hi, this is Jay from Abakine. And like, even after that, it was you still get caught up and like, hi, this is Jai from. Oh wait, no. And now it's just like, oh, well, I'm, I'm just me, if you will. I think I rarely introduce myself. Or I'm like, hi, this is Jai from Scholastic, although I did just before this interview. In fairness, I asked you to do that, <laughs> but I think it's it's just not being caught. And this goes back maybe to head and heart and image and all that. Not being caught in one specific identity. Like there is no. There is no one product manager. There is no one right way to be a product manager. There is no, like, this is what you should do to be, you know, a checklist of things to be successful. And it's just kind of like doing what you're, what makes, following your curiosity in some way and standing by that because that's what, that's what makes you, you. And, you know, that's what ultimately will make you successful if you, again, successful is not really the right word, but makes you it makes it more rewarding and it makes you thrive in some way, just generally in your life, outside of work, in, inside of work, all of that. I think that's fantastic advice for past Jai or anyone listening in, right? Don't be too attached 
to a specific identity and don't be too obsessed with how everybody else is doing it and operate, you know, within kind of your moral code, which you didn't expressly say, but but I've been inferring from the way that you've been speaking about collaborating with people and, and leading with the heart as, as you talk about. Yeah, you, you do you, as they say. <laughs> what about um, just challenges? Just straight up, like if you were going to say to somebody about product management, here's where I learned the hard way, or here's a mistake that I'd love to share with you now so that you hopefully don't ever have to go through it. I think the most embarrassing thing I can think of was this was not even product management. This was when I was working at the academic press. I emailed a, um, a professor. He he wrote a book for us, but I like there was there was some I was in charge of the blog and so any sort of current news that would tie well with something that our authors can say, I would reach out to them. And I had addressed this professor by the wrong name. I think his name was I confused Hernandez with Martinez or something. It was that. And I sent the email out and I realized it. And I was like, oh no, that's like that's terrible. And I like emailed him again. I was like, oh, you know, sorry. Like I realized I just did like Sorry. He responded, but he completely ignored that part. And I've done that again recently, actually, with someone, like, it was an email chain, and someone wanted me to proofread something, and I addressed the wrong person. Now I'm just like, okay, well, you know, like, sorry, Steve, I addressed the wrong person. But the first time I did that, I was so kind of, like, oh, God, okay, well, I have to own up to this and explain it. But I think, like, any, any mistake that you make, if you own up to it and you pushing yourself to get outside of that comfort zone or that like embarrassment, if you will, to be like, okay, well, sorry, like I'm human, I make, I make mistakes. And being able to give yourself that sort of room to be like, yeah, I make mistakes. Like everybody makes mistakes, but if you own up to it and you're aware of it, you can move past that and grow from that. Cool. So your advice really is make as many mistakes as you want, own them and let them go so that you can move forward. Yes, thank you. What do you love about product management? Why stick around in this? I like being able to work with different people. A person's personality comes through in his or her work through every job. But I think for me, what I found is that product allows me to do that and allows me to engage and interact with people in ways that I find. You know, like our One of our QA team members when I was in India was teaching me Hindu. And I was just like, when I got back, I was saying that on the on Skype with her. She's like, I can't believe you're saying this. And she was like making fun of me. Like that sort of interaction, that sort of fun, I feel like I can have with the teams I have around me, if that makes sense. I, I like the interaction with people and being able to think in different ways in terms of in terms of design in one day, and then maybe thinking about you know what the what the user flow is, and thinking about what how does this impact the user, but then also how does this impact the team, and how do we make decisions based on what the team is capable of doing and what they have capacity to do and time to do, and what is really important for a customer. And that's kind of it is compromised in some way, and it's also a sense of not being tied to one thing. Like, we need to have this thing because otherwise, you know, the world's going to end. And it's like, the world's not going to end if this button is not there. Like, we can have something that is an MVP, if you will, and, like, really just kind of drilling that home. Uh, managing those expectations also is, with different teams, is also a challenge, but also, you know, you, I learned through that. I think product, what I like about it, or where I've gotten myself to be in this job currently, is that I can 
have different, my engage in different interests and different ways of how I am and who I am with different people and bring that to the teams I work with. And that sort of collaboration, I think that's really the thing that, that I enjoy. Cool. What about uh, recommended resources to, to add to our growing list, books, blogs, podcasts, anything that's been influential to you doesn't have to be product management specific? Mm. I have a, a teacher who was telling us to read, it's on like the McNally Jackson tables. I think it's the hidden meaning of trees. And she was saying that like, you know, trees communicate with each other in very subtle ways. And humans communicate with each other in very subtle ways. We think communication is words. And I think in our work life, communication is words. I mean, most of our lives today, it's like, is words. You have Twitter, you email, you Instagram, I guess you have images, but you know, captions, whatever, everything is words. But there's so much, like what we were talking about earlier, there's so much loss or that cannot be conveyed, energy that cannot be conveyed through words. And I think product in some way is that also like sensing how different people think and how people, different people work and how they engage with the world, how they interact with people and how they, what has kind of shaped their beliefs, if you will, like the, our tech lead who was like, well, you know, I've learned from my wife that like, you're always right. You're the boss. You're always right. I was like, well, you know, that's, that's how he operates in some way. But then being able to recognize that and being able to work with him on that, like in this project, we have to meet up somewhere. I haven't read it yet. So that's like, that's not a, this is like a potentially empty recommendation, but I think there's something beautiful about that that I think can be helpful. I would like to read it. Yeah, you I want to read it too. You position it beautifully and we'll give you the opportunity to, we can always update the the interview transcript and say, you know, update. In an earlier post, Jaye said that this was going to be a good book and then determined that it wasn't. So (laughs) don't read it. All right. uh, Last question for you. Is there, I mean, I, I feel like you've been speaking in, in mantras and evocations this whole oh time, but no, in a beautiful way. I mean, it's been so, so great. But is there a, a soundbite, a, you know, side of the mug quote, some sort of philosophy that, that you use to kind of guide who you are in the world, whether personally, professionally, or, or both? Mm, I would say probably just you do you. I mean, even in my own life, like I grew up in different places. I was born in China, I grew up in Belgium, and then went to high school in New Haven, Connecticut. And I say I'm from New York now, but like, I've lived in New York the longest out of any place, but it's kind of like, okay, well, not really from New York, but sure. So I think that kind of also feeds into the whole, like there is no one way to be. There is no like, oh, I'm from, I'm from the East Coast because so I must be like this. I don't have that. I can't have that. I couldn't have that. And so I think part of that also translates into, I mean, that translates into who I am and how I carry myself, but then also in any sort of work situations, like that's, I don't have an image of like, I'm a consultant and I want, you know, I'm, I, I, I want to be a consultant and like, that's, this is who I am and this is what I'm working towards, where um, I'm a product manager and I want to be a product manager and this is what a product manager should be like. And it's like, that's, words are just abstractions and like they're, you know, titles aren't, doesn't really capture anything. And product manager, I, you were talking about this, a product manager here means something, but a product manager in other places means something completely different. And so even if you have, let's, you know, 10 years of product management experience going into a different environment, you're starting from scratch again, and you have to, you can't have that image necessarily. And so you do you, you know? 
You do you. Jai Yin, thank you so much for being a part of our show. It's great having you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe in the Apple Store at Google Play or on Stitcher or leave us a great review so others can help find us. If you want to get in touch directly, email me, Suzanne, at 100productmanagers.com or visit us on the web. Thank you.